Good morning. You all get a gold star for showing up at 7. I'm always blown away at paying week at 7 a.m. when people even come. Like if one came, I would be thrilled. So thank you for coming today. Um, you might think this is an odd subject to be talking about at Pain Week, but as we know, um, and if you turn on your television, you will know that there is this perceived opioid crisis. There's a problem in the U.S., and uh, prescribers have really been thrown under the bus for it, and so I want to be the first to say I'm here to represent you as a provider. I'm always a provider at heart, um, but there is an opioid epidemic. We'll kind of put it into perspective in a moment. And why it goes hand in hand, just a little bit of information about me, as well as my disclosures. Why it goes hand in hand is because as we treat chronic pain patients, we need to identify patients that truly are more at risk for um, substance use disorder and potentially considering uh, treatment for those patients. Maybe you won't be doing it, but you need to identify places that patients can receive these services. And then you need to be able to identify these patients because as you move forward and as they, you develop a relationship with them, you need to know who would be the appropriate patient maybe for opioids, who maybe would not be as, a, as appropriate. Um, and so hopefully we will help to kind of clean up some of that and clarify some of that as we move forward. We're going to look at the history of opioid use disorder, put things into perspective. I feel perspective is always important because if you turn on the television or the radio, you will hear things very much out of perspective. And it's really blown into this huge proportion, out of proportion. Well, we recently had a big news story that hit Memphis just two or three weeks ago, and it actually involved a physician that I um, have some relationship with in our hospital system. And it actually stemmed back to an issue in, in 2012. But because it was news and because it, and everybody kept saying, why did they bring it back up? And I said, why did they not? I mean, it's news. They, they're, they're there to make news. And they needed a sole story, and that was the story. And the whole situation and everything was blown out of proportion. Um, I actually met with the physician that was involved with it and just offered my condolences because I felt like him, his family, was being drugged through the mud yet again. And this was seven years later. And he has made retribution. He's done the things that he needed to do. And, you know, but, the, but here we are, and they brought it back up again. So again, I want to put things into perspective. We're going to look at some approved treatments, how that looks, how it works, and then of course the benefits and the limitations associated. Our prescribing patterns actually have changed. And what we've seen over the past few years is we do see a decline in prescribers prescribing opioids, still prescribing appropriately, and we want to be careful and say there are patients that opioids are appropriate for, and we want to make that available to those patients. We shouldn't be shunned. We should not remove the ability to provide that to those patients. But as you can see, there's still definite um, prescribing habits. One issue that I have, and this is actually from the CDC, it says, despite recent declines, opioid prescribing is still high and inconsistent across the U.S. Well, potentially it's inconsistent across the U.S. because different states and different areas of states have different groups of people in them. So let's be really careful in, you know, what's high, what's low, what's good, what's bad. Um, but nonetheless, this is kind of what the U.S. looks like, so you can find your state. So perspective, very important. Here's what we know. We've heard enough about opioid deaths, and we don't want to forget it, but of all drug deaths, okay, any medication, Coumadin, insulin, opioids included, 60,000 to 70,000 annually die um, related to a drug death. 
So again, you got to be careful and understand what a drug death is. So it's not just always an opioid. All right, let's drill down. Of the opioid deaths, including heroin and fentanyl, carfentanyl specifically, and prescription opioids, 30,000 to 40,000. Okay, when is the last time you prescribe heroin or carfentanyl? No, we don't do that. But keep in mind that gets lumped into the opioid death rate. Okay, so I would say a problem nonetheless, about half. All right, but then what else? Now compare it to hospital-acquired infections, 99,000 annually. Doesn't make the news, does it? But, 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 but that's a problem. Tobacco, alcohol, guns, traffic, it's more than 700,000 annually. Do we talk about it? Sure, it's talked about. We know there's a lot of talk about gun death and safety and all of that. Um, but again, what's a sexier topic to talk about the opioid um, deaths? And we don't want to belittle it. We don't want to um, just explain it away, but nonetheless. So fentanyl is responsible for about 80% of all opioid deaths. So the first reaction might be, well, let's not prescribe fentanyl. But we know that only 5% of fentanyl overdose deaths are attributed to the pharmaceutical grade fentanyl that any of us might prescribe at any time for a patient, 5%. So it's more difficult than that. And then, of course, we found out that 72% of deaths that involved oxycodone, a prescribed opioid, also included alcohol and or benzodiazepine, cocaine, kratom, methamphetamine, and or other opioids probably not prescribed to that patient. So I want to say, I don't know that we're in the midst of an opioid epidemic, but what we are in the midst of is a polypharmacy epidemic. We've seen surges. Again, these are not new statistics. But what we've seen is this sudden increased surge in um, synthetic opioids, ultimately carfentanil. So just a few definitions to put some things into perspective. A lot of patients come in and say, I don't want to become addicted. What they're oftentimes talking about is tolerance and withdrawal. Because we know if you um, become tolerant to a drug, right, and you become physically dependent to the drug, you remove the drug, you go into withdrawal. It's not necessarily addiction. What happens if you have a thyroid disorder and you are on Synthroid for said thyroid disorder and you stop it abruptly? Your TSH goes out the roof. It's just how it works because your body becomes physically dependent. Well, same situation with opioids, basically. You get tolerance, and so basically what happens is a person develops a diminished response. So the amount of medication they take oftentimes is diminished at some point. Now, we also have patients that have been on the exact same dose for many, many, many years. So they've not developed tolerance, and you would think they would have by now, but yet they haven't. But we do know tolerance exists. And then, of course, physical dependence, just saying, if we abruptly stop something, some medication, then the body will have an experience from that abrupt withdrawal. And then we have this term called pseudo-addiction. It really is undertreated. Practitioners really misinterpret it because it's a patient that comes in asking for more pain medication and maybe seeking, and, and some behaviors are shown there, um, often with addiction, but oftentimes can be undertreated. We also know with pseudo-addiction, we also know with the state we're in, that we've also seen a rise in suicide deaths, secondary to chronic pain patients who now are no longer able to get access to pain medications, the appropriate therapies that they've been treated on, treated for many years. So we know we have issues going on. 
Now, true addiction is a psychological condition or disease, and it describes compulsion to take a drug or engage in other harmful behaviors, inability to stop or to limit a substance use, and really what they do is they use said substance to prevent the withdrawal that they're going to experience if they don't continually use. And often, and you'll also hear the word craving. And that's usually what I use in my practice when I'm asking a patient, because first thing, especially older patients, I don't want to become addicted. All right, well, let's talk about that. Do you crave this? Do you crave that hydrocodone 5 that you take once or twice a day um, for your severe OA everywhere? Do you crave it? Do you can't, can't wait to No. Then you're not addicted. So screening for opioid use disorder, and there's really now a universal push that we should be screening in primary care and really as many places as we possibly can get it. Clearly, if you're in a chronic pain practice, we need to be screening there if we're going to be treating patients so we know what patients we are working with and what populations we're working with. Um, but not only that, the push now is that we are screening in primary care. But we, because we know there's really a high prevalence of substance use disorder, and I'm not just speaking of opioids, but substance use disorder in primary care. And we know that the effectiveness of therapy, if we identify those patients, is stellar. Therefore, we can appropriately treat the patients. Um, and also, we take a stigma out. The push now, especially when we're talking about medication-assisted therapy, is that it be done in a primary care office. Because if it's done in a primary care office, it's kind of low-key. You're not going into psychiatric treatment. You are not going to a methadone clinic. You're going to your primary care provider, which everybody does that, right? And so there's less stigma. And patients are more likely to begin treatment, continue treatment, and finish treatment where appropriate. So a couple of screening tools I just want to bring to mind just to remember what we're talking about. We have the drug abuse screening tool uh, or test. It's 10 questions. It's been around for many years. Self-administered or you can do it through interview. Used with adults, good sensitivity. There's a Spanish version if you need it. You can find that online. But these just ask these questions. Have you used um, drugs other than those required for medical reasons? Uh, do you abuse more than one drug at a time? Unable to stop. Um, do you ever feel bad or guilty? So again, yes and no answers. And it's looking at 12 months. Of course, this is a screening, the, the testing tool, and it's zero. Of course, no problem at this time. Uh, one to two is low level monitoring, three to five moderate, and of course, six to eight substantial, and you would want an intensive assessment at that point. Another option is cage aid. Again, been, along very, been around very long. And you can also, you know, we use this not only for drug use, but drinking as well, so alcohol use as well. It talks about, have you, um, do you feel you should cut down? Has anybody ever been annoyed by your use? And four questions, so very, very quick and brief. Uh, do you ever feel bad or guilty, just like the other one? And finally, have you ever had a drink or use drugs first thing in the morning as an eye-opener? Now, one, two, and three can really be attributed to binge drinking. Um, but four actually is physical dependence. So if you have a positive four, um, think physical dependence at this point, because what are they doing? They're taking a drug or they're taking, uh, you know, whatever that substance is, they're using that to wake up and to function the next day. Because keep in mind, oftentimes these patients, you cannot identify them by looking at them, and you can't identify them because they're not working and they're a junkie on the street. That's not who they are. 
They usually are functioning at some level. They are going to work. They're doing the best they can with the problems, and they're trying at the best they can to treat them themselves, and it's usually with continued use. So you can't just pick them out because their life has fallen apart, does it? Oftentimes later, but you oftentimes just can't pick them out by a history. So some very candid questions are very important for these patients. Now, caveat here, this was an advanced practice track um, title. Um, and so you see nurse practitioner. Obviously, we're talking about any practitioner, any provider. Obviously, your goal is to review the results of the screening tool with the patient and then, of course, give a brief intervention. So what do we want to do at this point? And that's your goal that if you're in primary care. Okay, so we identify a problem, and then what do we do at this point? We need to either provide referral, or you might be the answer because you may be wavered and you may be able to provide treatment for the patient where they are. And that's really our goal. So I always say know your resources in your area. If you are not wavered as a Suboxone um, prescriber, um, know who is, know how to get them treatment, um, and know how to get them help relatively quickly. Obviously, we always have to consider insurance and our payer barriers because they do exist. And oftentimes, these patients don't necessarily have to go into inpatient therapy. So again, we need to identify the patients. We need to get them somewhere quickly, and it very likely could be you. So what does acute opioid withdrawal syndrome look like? Um, very much what we know and we've always learned. But keep in mind, we usually, and I point to the left side of your screen here, um, this is usually what people are continuing to use to prevent. Okay, so pupillary dilatation, uh, watery eyes, runny nose, muscle spasms, um, sweating chills, goose flesh, stomach cramps, diarrhea, vomiting, anxiety, irritability. Okay, so that's what that continued use is. There's been some research done, and, and the, it, I felt like the research was quite flawed, um, but consider the source. So there was research done recently over the past few years, and it was done at a treatment center, active treatment center. And they basically asked about patients that were chronic pain patients and why they continued to use even after the pain had resolved. Well, it was for this very reason. They did not want the symptoms to occur, and clearly they were not ready to address the problem associated with a substance use disorder that they now developed, and so they continued that use. So they were keeping, the cra you know, they were keeping those cravings, if you will, at bay, um, so they continued the use. So it was a large part of pain patients. Keep in mind that's not a large part of our population. When we're talking about chronic pain patients, the idea behind it is there's really 20% of the population that are chronic pain patients that do have a true opioid use disorder. Um, so 80% of your patients have no issues associated. So we need to keep that into perspective as well, but 20% may. And so we need to be able to identify those patients, appropriately treat their pain, but keeping in mind what their risks are and get them, getting them appropriate treatment if we do identify those patients. So it's a new day. We know what happened in 2000. It was called the Data Act, the Drug Addiction Treatment Act. And this allowed qualified physicians only to dispense and prescribe specifically approved Schedule 3, 4, 5 narcotic medications um, in settings other than an opioid treatment program. Remember, we're talking about stigma. There's a lot of people that will not and are not for at going into an opioid treatment program. So this is what the Data Act of 2000 did. It provided an opportunity for patients to be treated in different environments and maybe less stigma associated with them. 16 years later, 
the CARA Act, the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, um, President Obama signed into law July 22, 2016. This extended buprenorphine um, prescribing privileges in the office space setting to qualified nurse practitioners and physician assistants until t October 1, 2021. So then what happens in 2021? They usually, it's called the sunset, and so what they usually do, we'll look and see how many are doing this, and we know that this number is quite high, um, and we know it is making great strides in opioid use disorder, and they usually just extend it and remove a date. But always when they usually, always, usually when they put into law something like this, they will put a date in which it ends so they bring it back around for review. Um, so that's, don't get concerned with a 2021 sunset period. But no state laws, because here's what you need to know. Just because there was a federal law established saying nurse practitioners and physician assistants could now prescribe this if they were qualified and wavered, and we'll talk about that, um, your state law actually does dictate this. So you must be licensed under state law to prescribe a Schedule 3, 4, and 5 medication, okay? But not only that, you also must have, be licensed in a state that allows you to prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. In the state of Tennessee, I can provide my patients with buprenorphine for chronic pain. In the state of Tennessee, I cannot, as a nurse practitioner, just because there's a federal law, but I cannot prescribe buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. So again, we're working on some antiquated laws to try and get changed. It's been interesting watching the interview process and us trying to work through this. But nonetheless, um, you know, we're one of the only states in the U.S. that does not allow nurse practitioners and PAs to prescribe um, buprenorphine for opioid use disorder. So if you are licensed appropriately, then you complete a 24-hour appropriate education through a qualified provider. SAMHSA has one, AANP has one. There's, a multi there's multiple ways of attaining this 24-hour education. I've done the education even though I cannot become wavered. I've done the 24-hour education. It's good pharmacology credits if you need it. Um, and you can find free versions of this 24-hour um, education. So it's really good education and really good education to put in your, your arsenal, especially on how to appropriately screen and, and truly move these patients into appropriate, appropriate therapy. And then finally, if required by your state, you must be supervised or work in collaboration with a qualified physician to prescribe medications for treatment of opioid use disorder. So once your training is complete, you then seek to obtain a data 2000 waiver for up to 30 patients. So it's 30 patients at any one time is how many you can have. Um, and then up to 100 patients after one year. So for the first year, you can care for 30 patients at any one time. Okay, so you might not have, you know, John might be with you for um, two or three months and then he leaves and then that so at any one time, you cannot have more than 30 patients. And then after one year, the idea is that you can have up to 100 patients. The idea, too, behind this was that you would, number one, get very comfortable because this isn't just bring them in, giving them a prescription, and then sending them out. You have a lot of work that you have to do with the patient. Obviously, we don't just prescribe medications. We want patients in appropriate counseling. And so we need to either do that and provide that within our practice and or get them a referral for that. So there's more to it than just prescribing a medication. 
But all, not only that, the idea behind this was it, we're not wanting people necessarily just to go open up an addiction treatment center and begin doing this. The idea behind this is, again, that it will come back into family practice and internal medicine in those places. And so, again, you're going to be dealing with a lot of other patients, and this would be a small cohort that you would care for as well. DEA will assign the NPPA, and of course the physician as well, an identification number, basically a different DEA number, um, to include on all buprenorphine prescriptions when you're treating opioid dependency patients. There's always the question when we talk about medication-assisted therapy, and, and it goes like this. Well, aren't you just giving them one medication in place of another medication? And the answer is ultimately yes. The goal of treatment is not that they're going to be on this medication forever, yet some are. So what is the option? Do we leave them on treatment or do we just take them off and leave them to flounder if in fact they do need it longer than what is recommended? Highly functioning, caring for their kids, healthy relationships, or we just take them off because, well, you shouldn't just be on medication we know that 80 to 90% of patients will relapse without a medication of some sort. Okay? Increases treatment re retention, decreases drug use and crime, and decreases death rates. Um, keep in mind, too, do you know where the most common um, risk of death is associated when a patient goes in treatment for opioid use disorder or any type of drug um, treatment? They're at highest risk of death immediately coming out. I had an idea of what it was, and I thought, well, what they do is they go back and they go use the same amount that they were using, and so then they overdose. As I've been more um, involved in some treatment with patients, I'm going to change my stance here and say that oftentimes we believe that it potentially is suicide. Yes, they use a drug, and yes, they use a lot of the drug, but we think it is suicide because when they go into opioid use disorder treatment or substance use disorder treatment, they oftentimes figure out how hard the rest of their life is going to be because this isn't just a, oh, we fixed your diabetes, you're done. This is often something they will deal with for the rest of their lives. So we don't know the exact data on that, but it's not that they just go back and use the same amount and then they accidentally overdose all the time. But what we know is we're decreasing death rates because we're providing them with something. We're taking away a lot of the um, feelings and the cravings associated with it. Obviously, medication should never be used alone. We really want to think about cognitive behavioral therapy and, of course, counseling associated with it. How do we get them back into um, whatever activities they're not able to do? How do we, again, get them beyond cravings? How do we get them to understand um, the disease that they now have? Um, and then where to go from there? Let's look at three medications, of course. Naltrexone, which is an antagonist. Buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist associated with the CARE Act 2016. And then methadone not included in the DATA Act of 2000 or the CARE Act of 2016, and it's a, a full agonist. So any of these three medications can be used and are indicated for opioid use disorder. Now, oral naltrexone basically just blocks. It blocks the effect that if you take an opioid on top of naltrexone, naltrexone is a heavier chemical. This is very simple, so my pharmacists don't, like, get me. 
but basically a heavier chemical, and so the opioid is just not strong enough to offset it, so you don't get the effects of the opioid if you take them. So naltrexone does that. A couple of different ways that you can treat with, 50 milligrams usually is starting daily. It can go to 100 milligrams every other day, and about 150 every three days. And patients go through an induction, meaning patients need to be on board for this, just like anything else. It requires five to seven-day abstinence from whatever they are using. And then, of course, seven to days if they're using something that is longer acting, such as methadone or buprenorphine. Um, and so the idea behind this is if we don't do this and we give naltrexone on top of it, what happens? Significant withdrawal. So the idea is the patients need to basically come into your office or come in with some type of withdrawal, and then you begin to treat that. But of course, unlike the other medications, specifically buprenorphine and methadone, um, they continue in craving, right? Because this medication does nothing for craving. It doesn't allow the medication or the um, drug to do its job that it's going to do and take away craving. So keep in mind, patients really have to be um, invested in this type of therapy because, again, it does, does nothing for craving. It's safe to use. There's no abuse potential. Blocks the effect of the opioid. That's basically all it does. Reduces the danger of accidental overdose. No physical dependence. Little or no stigma in recovery community. But less research, less experience, um, not really reinforcing any support of retention into treatment. No benefit of a limited withdrawal to prevent treatment dropout. High cost limits access. May not control cravings, and it really doesn't do that. And again, you have to have some type of opioid-free period to be induced. We see most effect here when a patient, when a, that patient cannot be positive for anything such as buprenorphine and methadone. Very often, our healthcare providers, you're pretty motivated. If your job is at risk, you're pretty motivated to go through some type of naltrexone um, treatment because there's oftentimes, especially surgeons, um, that cannot have that in their system if they're going to be operating. Pilots is another place that we find have higher retention rates because, again, motivation. Most patients, not as much motivation because, again, you've done nothing for the craving. You've only blocked the ability of the opioid, if they do take that, um, to do anything. Now, methadone, again, not included, but I want to touch on it. It's a full opioid agonist, long variability, um, between 20 and 120 hour half-life, if you will. Uh, onset of action, keep in mind, what are we talking about? So onset of action is 30 to 60 minutes, but duration for opioid use disorder, 24 to 36 hours. So once daily dosing, so think about methadone clinics. What do they do? The patients have to line up. They get their methadone dose for the day. They take the methadone dose, and they're covered for 24 hours, and then they do the same thing the next day. Now, for chronic pain use, which we know methadone has an indication of chronic pain use, it provides about 68 hours of chronic pain analgesia. The dosing of opioid use disorder is between 20 and 40 milligrams for acute withdrawal, greater than 80 when you have patients that have severe craving. So again, individualized treatment just like anything else. But keep in mind with methadone, methadone comes with risks. Uh, QTC prolongation, torsatus deponus. So as you know, we do have a cardiac risk associated with the use of methadone. Here's what we know. Methadone is superior to placebo. We've seen patients retain 
being retained in treatment if they use methadone, but keep in mind where they've got to receive methadone. They cannot receive it because it is illegal. If you prescribe it from primary care or chronic pain or anywhere for opioid use disorder, that is illegal. You're prescribing it inappropriately. Um, if you do it for chronic pain, no worries, but you cannot use it for opioid use disorder. Um, so keep in mind it does retain patients in treatment, but where do they have to go to get it? So again, they're either um, going to be in a methadone treatment facility or they're going to a methadone clinic to obtain it. So a benefit definitely, but again, stigma all around with methadone. 70% or more treatment retention at one year with methadone. It treats cravings. It blocks illicit opioid use. There's a lot of research associated with it. Also, it reduces the risk of addiction related to death and health problems. Medication costs minimal, very cheap medication. Limitations, again, where do you have to get it? It can only be um, obtained through an opioid treatment program, illegal to prescribe in practice for opioid use disorder. Obviously, it comes with a stigma, potential for abuse, patient burden for compliance, because you have to line up and get it. You have to go somewhere and get the medication. And they usually don't give you a very long period of time that you can get the medication, or they won't give you like a 30-month, 30, 30-day you know, supply. So you're usually having to go daily, sometimes weekly, but daily. Buprenorphine, partial mu agonist. It blocks most effect of other opioids if taken due to the high affinity for and the slow dissociation um, from mu opioid receptors. It is a Schedule 3 methadone Schedule 2. It's approved for uh, moderate to severe opioid use disorder. Okay, and this is the different formulations. So your sublingual buprenorphine, um, by the way, we're talking buprenorphine naloxone. We're not talking the branded Belbuca. Okay, so for opioid use disorder, we're talking uh, buprenorphine naltrexone or the monotherapy buprenorphine. They also come in planable and once monthly injectable. So again, you can go um, and get this done. It can be implantable for longer periods of time, injectable monthly. So again, you can see a benefit over methadone um, for this formulation. Now, approved for pain and not opioid use disorder, the parenteral forms, transdermal seven-day patch, which is B-trans, and buccal formulation, Belbuca. Comes in a lot of different um, options, two milligrams um, to 0.5, and so that's in the buprenorphine naloxone sublingual films. Each of these are sublingual. And of course, it goes up from there. And you can also see this Zebsolve versus um, Suboxone. So you have options for therapy here um, with the buprenorphine. Now, induction. So here's the textbook induction. Kind of the same situation as naltrexone. We ask them to come in. We want them to be in um, basically some type of withdrawal when they are induced. It's 2 to 4 milligrams, up to 8 milligrams daily. So you, you usually start with four, 2 to 4 milligrams. You see how the patient does. You keep them there. And you see how long it takes for their withdrawals to begin to subside. And then up to 8 milligrams. Now, the doses range is 8 to 24 milligrams as you get them on therapy. So you may need more as they go. Um, usually, goal dose is 16 milligrams daily. Also comes injectable and plantable options once you get a stable dosing for the patient. 
Now, what do we know about this? 24 random, randomized trials, 5,000 patients, and we found buprenorphine superior to placebo and to moderate dose methadone, retaining patients in treatment, reducing illicit opioid use. I want to go back just a moment. So again, perfect way. What do they do? They've got to be same idea as the naltrexone. About five to seven days, we ask them to be off of whatever illegal or prescribed medication um, it is that they are using. And then we ask them to come in. So then they're supposed to come in and withdrawal, and then you begin this induction. That is the textbook's version, and that's how you teach it. Now, here's what usually happens. Buprenorphine has a street value, and buprenorphine is being passed around on the street. And oftentimes with these patients, they will come to you and know exactly how much medication, how much buprenorphine it will take to get them from their craving. Um, and I have a very dear friend in Arizona that does this every day, and she said most all of them have tried this. They know how it works, they know how it's going to work, and they know how much medication they need. She does offer and ask them to do the same situation of coming, you know, in some type of withdrawal, um, and they do, but then she has almost a quicker way of knowing how much medication will, it will take. But she still will start with the 2 to 4 milligrams. She'll keep them there for 30 to 40 minutes and then keep reassessing them and go up on the dose. Her idea behind this is oftentimes I'm at 12 or 16 milligrams even before they leave the office because they've had this medication and we know where we're going with this medication. So just keep in mind there's textbook and then there's real world of what that looks like. The advantage, thank you to Data 2000 because it truly great, and greatly increased access. Less severe dependency allows for an easier transition between recovery with and without medication. So oftentimes this is the better option and we even see them with methadone in methadone treatment centers. What they will do is then convert them from methadone down to buprenorphine and then buprenorphine off if they come off um, because there's an easier transition. It's a partial agonist so it's safer and with less overdose potential, lower obese potential. So keep in mind with a patient and that's why they don't give a lot of methadone because there's a great risk of overdose potential there. And so with buprenorphine, it's less risk of overdose. They can still overdose on buprenorphine, but you'd have to take a whole lot more because it is a partial um, new agonist as opposed to a full new agonist. And then people live normal lives, no cravings, withdrawal, and they oftentimes do not have to come. You know, you oftentimes see them weekly or every two weeks initially, and then you can even go to every month at that point. But keep in mind, we are pairing it with cognitive behavioral therapy and counseling and then seeing what the rest of their life is going to look like. We've really seen it save lives. Of course, it's not a full agonist, so it doesn't ret always retain people in treatment as well as a full agonist. So it doesn't remove craving as well as methadone. Um, so some patients, especially if they are a high user um, in larger amounts, buprenorphine oftentimes they have to go get methadone first and again can go then transition. Um, but methadone, methadone with high, um, high milligram dosage users is usually a better place to start. Has diversion potential, we know that, um, may be misused. It's expensive and access is limited. Still stigma in recovery communities about it, but less stigma if you can go to a primary care office or an internal medicine office to get it, as opposed to standing in methadone clinic line or having to go inpatient therapy to be treated. No one treatment is right. So there's three FDA-approved treatments. Um, and again, pharmacotherapy as well as behavioral interventions is key here. 
We want to now think about screening our patients for addiction and screen early and yearly. So the recommendation is when patients are coming in for well patient visits, if you are in primary care or internal medicine, that they're being screened there and then early referral. If you are working in the chronic pain world, then we usually recommend screening at intake and then periodically after. Um, with most of my patients, I would screen every year after as well. The brief questionnaire can, you know, make it easy to do. They can do it while they're waiting. Um, so again, there's not a lot of risk of why, do, why aren't we screening? Um, it's easy. Patients can do that. Um, or you can interview and do that um, within your practice. We have to know your state guidelines, obviously, to prescribe if you're a nurse practitioner or a PA. And we do know that AANP offers the 24-hour waiver education to prescribe. There are some references for you, and I'm actually done a few minutes early, um, but there are some references available for you <clears throat> if you're interested. And if you're interested in being wavered, if you have questions about being wavered, I would be happy to take some questions from you if you have any. Yes, ma'am. So the question is, do you, re do you consider the morphine milliequivalents when you're starting them on, them on buprenorphine? And the question is, yes, I would consider it. There is no rule of thumb saying you can't use buprenorphine. Um, but what will happen there is if they're taking a higher, let's say they're on, you know, five, six, seven hundred milligrams of morphine daily, which we have patients that are, um, obviously it's going to take a longer period of time. So what we will do is, no, I'll start them on four milligrams. Or we will start them on four milligrams and then we will monitor them. But we might pull them up. So they might be at 12 milligrams when they leave the office as opposed to about eight milligrams, maybe even 16 milligrams. We simply watch the patient and you will know if they do what you're asking them to do and come in, to withdraw, come in with some withdrawal, they look like they're, within, they're having withdrawal and they feel bad and they're antsy and this and you can kind of watch them relax. So I consider it, but I will still start between two and four and then just kind of see how they do. Now, we don't really have a good morphine equivalency for heroin. So, you know, again, depends on how much they're using and how high it is. I will tell you with heroin, if it's higher, you know, if it's a lot of heroin or if it's methadone that they are abusing, oftentimes buprenorphine can be more difficult to treat with. Yes, sir. So the, say that again, the, um, speak to the what of naltrexone? Um, the, duration. the duration. Obviously, it depends on the patient, and that's why we show it as 50, 100, and 150 milligrams. Some patients can take 150 milligrams, and it will last three to four days. Some patients have to take it daily and even higher doses. So no, I've not had a ton of experience with naltrexone. So I can't really speak to um, how, how, you know, the affinity really for it, um, but... You know, it's 50 to 100 to 150. And it's uh, totally individualized. Because then they're using again? Where it's off and the. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it is, and I know, um, so when I was in the chronic pain world, I know anybody that was on anything, you know, if we, we found that they were on heroin or things like that, they wouldn't even put them to sleep because, again, you can put naloxone on board, but you don't know how long it's going to last, and there oftentimes were failed outcomes with these patients. Yes, sir. So we do more with outpatient services as opposed to inpatient services. You have to, yeah. So we provide them with resources, but we usually do outpatient. Um, they're usually detoxing themselves, yes. Yes, and we usually get, I know, and we usually get family involved and do the best we can. Because, again, we usually, we try to get these people early, and we tr so they're highly functional. So they can't go into therapy or don't want to go into therapy. So our idea behind it is if we can get them early, yes, you are doing it at home. Yes, we get patients, families involved, if at all possible. Now, if they are all by themselves and there's no one and things like that, then we do recommend inpatient therapy. We have limited access of getting patients into inpatient therapy a lot of times in our area. So we've been more successful with outpatient therapy. But, yes, they're doing a lot of it on their own. And so our concern is... Do we know what? Say it again. I'm so sorry. I still can't hear you. What the rate of relapse with buprenorphine? So overall, it's 80 to 90 percent. That includes the methadone, and we know methadone rates are higher. Um, we find buprenorphine is about 60 to 70 percent retention. We use, um, so what we usually do is write the prescription, the patient gets it and brings it into our office, and we, use, we actually use the one with the naltrexone in it, and that's what I've had most experience with. It has a higher street value. You're correct. You're correct about that, yeah. And so that's why we usually use the dual therapy. Correct, yes, sir. Yes? What's the reasoning behind the formulation, the formulation for buprenorphine not being used for opioid use disorder and other What's the logic behind that? I don't know that there's a logic other than we know it treats pain, and so when it came to market, they brought it to market with a pain indication. Um, I don't know that there's necessarily a logic, and then other than if you are not wavered, you can't prescribe it. Okay, you're welcome to. An opioid block? Well, so methadone, yes, in higher doses is basic. Well, it's its, it's, its own meth opioid, but in higher doses, of course, it blocks any other opioid. Um, because it, it's in higher doses and, again, the affinity for the mu opioid receptor. So, and it, keep in mind the, the half-life. So it stays around a lot, lot longer um, than any other opioid. All right. Let me see what time it is. Oh, I'm at time. So I need to stop here, but I'll be happy to talk to you after. Um, but thank you so much for